Hello, you're listening to Northern Stages Podcast. When we say a podcast, we mean a conversation. A conversation we held on Tuesday the 21st of July. It's a conversation with me, Mark Calvert, and the Magical Kitchen Zoo, who are Hannah Gowdy-Hunter and Bob Nicholson. Bob, Hannah and I chat about making processes, the demands of doing every job to get something in front of an audience, and the value of family work and how it's viewed. Hope you enjoy. Afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to Northern Stages Podcast. Uh, we are joined today by the monumentally brilliant Kitchen Zoo and the always silent and elusive producer Johnny. Um, so, uh, afternoon, Bob. Afternoon, Hannah. How are you both? Very well, thank you. How are yeah, you? Yeah, good, thanks. I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I've just um, had uh, my lunch. Actually, that's didn't really need to know that. Um, let's get down to the sort of like the nuts and bolts of it rather than talking about my lunch. <laughs> tell us everything you had. That would be... No, I couldn't. I couldn't divulge that. It would be like you'd be you'd be disgusted. Um, <clears throat> so we're here to chat with you guys for about an hour about your work, uh, kitchen zoo, uh, making work for family audiences, etc., uh, etc. Et um, so why don't we start at the beginning? Like, where did uh, kitchen zoo start? Why did it start? That's a very good question. Oh. Yeah, it is. Thank you. And you're partly to blame, really. I yeah. Suppose, cause, oh, am I? Eeks. Well, yeah. you are a little bit. Because Hannah and I met when we were doing North in... 2014. 2014. That was the first time we met. Uh, and it was the first time we had the idea for Kitchen Zoo. Um one day in rehearsals for uh, the, the show that we were making. And it wasn't until 2016 that we applied for a, um, a commission to make The Owl and the Pussycat. Uh, but we'd done a lot of, um, individually, we'd done a lot of children's theatre and family theatre. Uh, I'd done a show with you, actually, in the dark ages, whenever I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I was but a... Yeah. A small boy when we did it and then and then Hannah and I did some more um children's theatre together and thought we could do this uh just as well and then yeah we decided to make a company yeah we decided to go for the commission which unfortunately we weren't successful in which was absolutely <laughs> fine but um the lovely Annabelle Turpin from ARC said maybe we should talk about this show the Elm the Pussycat sounds quite good um maybe there's a way we could make it and lo and behold, Kitchen Zoo was born. And uh, yeah, so that's when we started. That was then 2017, I think. Yeah, we ended up making it. Because I remember a conversation that happened at Northern Stage where somebody went, somebody suggesting that um, this company called Kitchen Zoo came out of a North program. And there was outrage for about 25 minutes where everybody Googled Kitchen Zoo for. Um, <clears throat> Or twenty-five minutes, and then there you appeared, and it was Hannah and Bob. And so, where where does the does the name come from? Because actually, it's always intrigued me. This the name. <laughs> this is debatable. The, well, it's not debatable. There's a, there's a there is an answer. When we made we made a show called Send More Paper that you directed for North, and in the rehearsal room for some reason there was some kitchen utensils and like a bowl that wasn't being used, where they were just in the rehearsal room and. Hannah and I weren't in whatever it was rehearsing we were at the time. Definitely having a break at the time. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we were making sort of, we were just messing about making kind of animals out of it, like puppets out of these 
kitchen utensils that were lying around. And then, this is where the bone of contention is, because everyone in Camisado Club, which is the company that came out of North, all say, they all pipe up at this point in the story and go, and then I said, you should call it Kitchen Zoo. But they didn't. No one said that. It was me and Hannah who came up with it, <laughs> Kitchen Zoo. I'm, you know, I'm, I'll fight anyone on that. But it was me and Hannah who came up with the idea. But it was because because we were just having messing about with these uh Kitchen, kitchen utensils, utensils yeah. elephants. Obviously chicken. a very focused professional about. rehearsal room absolutely. that you're involved in. <laughs> inspirational, you might Inspiration, say. absolutely. But that's where the idea came from, but we never actually made a show about um, kitchen, kitchen utensils coming to life and making animals. Maybe we were. But I suppose it's fair that like all of our work includes utensils and things you might find around the house, around the house, around the house, that you might use in a different way. So I think all of our shows have had spoons used for something or other, oars of boats and things. So there's always that recognisable thing. It's a homemade quality to it in some way. I know a girl with a rocket machine When it comes to rockets, she's a queen She zoomed to space, high as a kite It was her magnificent maiden flight So can I ask you, um, you're part of a company called Kamasada Club and, and at the same time you've uh, made Kitchen Soup together. Why did you decide to make work beyond that you'd been in work together um, for in family theatre? Why have you made Kitchen Zoo into a, a theatre company that specifically looks at work for families and also work for under fives, if that's true? Well, I, sp- I suppose families is true. We don't specifically make under five shows. Our first two shows were three to sevens, actually. Oh, well, family shows, but uh, aimed at three to sevens. I, I suppose because we've both been in it, and we both did it, in, uh, and had been in things of sort of varying degrees of success, I suppose. So we'd made some very, very good... We sort of saw what worked very well. And also that we had an interest in things like puppetry and theatre that had music in it. We were interested in uh, the visual aspect of theatre as, well as, uh, as well as sort of writing. But... Uh, also, in a sort of mercenary kind of way, we needed work as well. Like there, there's a lot of people making or uh, vying for jobs in the northeast. Not many opportunities, and there's not many uh, companies making children's work. No, unless it's um, Christmas. There's definitely a, a gap that we were kind of we saw and we took advantage of. I suppose we, you know, we're devisers at heart and enjoy and passionate about making theatre and doing good storytelling and then having this passion for working with young people because we've done a lot of facilitation separately as well so I think putting those things together having done North and going oh actually we've got the skills now that we didn't have to kind of organise a company and create a show and then putting that all together and being like use our passions and and make something excellent which is really fun I think both of us find from the previous work we'd done not in Kitchen Zoo for families that that um it's it's really important <laughs> family work and work for children because it's a sort of blank canvas in some ways that you we often feel now when we go into that we're sort of setting a, a groundwork for theatre because 
this you know you theater's got to battle against so many things you know you can just pull out your phone and you can watch anything you want uh netflix anything and so theater's got this real kind of difficulty in how does it uh attract new audiences i think we felt quite passionately that it's got to be really good quality work it, uh, and it's got to, it's got to be the same kind of quality that you would put into a an adult show a show for you know for grown-ups uh and I, I think that was one of the reasons as well to, to make a, a company because we, like I said, because we've been in, you know, very, very good show. I've been in a show that you did and Mark, and then we've been in other shows as well. And I and worked in places that I'd worked in seven stories as well and did some um, storytelling. And so we had lots of sort of skills that were, that were good for making good quality work, I suppose. You know, I think you're right, you know, about how uh, making work for, um, family audiences can sometimes be, <clears throat> I don't know, not appreciated as, as much as it possibly should be. You yeah, know, it's, so. it's, it's hard graft, you know, yeah. uh, they're a very true audience. And, yes. <laughs> and so I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's about the quality of what the offer is and also about, for some people, it's their first experience of going into a theatre. And, and, and that's where, you know, as you're saying, Bob, that, that memory might last for them to go back you know, to, to re-engage in theatre, you know, further on down the line. Yeah, and with Alan Pussycat, I remember saying, you know, this is a story that we've grown up with as children, and yet somehow it's still, children still enjoy it. And so trying to kind of make a family show, so it isn't just for young people and the parents will sit there and be a bit bored, but that actually it's interesting and engaging for them too, and this kind of cross-generational work that, like, excites everyone and goes, oh, do you know what? We could go to the theatre more than just Christmas. Maybe this is something we could do regularly together because we've all enjoyed it. So that's been a good a good challenge and definitely something we're still trying to do. And that really was the... I sort of forget that. That, it, that really was the idea for Owl and Pussycat. The first one we did was that both of us had been told that story as children by our parents and had had really lovely experiences of... When we first started talking about a company it was about the experiences that we'd had as children and it, often it was always you know with our parents it wasn't sort of seeing it wasn't just as children individually it was about things that we'd done together and gone you know occasionally to the theatre or stories that we'd enjoyed or films actually that we'd enjoyed watching together and I think it because children never just arrive at the theatre by themselves there's half the audience so you know they don't just turn up they don't buy the tickets half the audience is grown-ups so it's got to, some of the, the story I always feel, unless you're making very sort of specific work for, you know, two to two and a half year olds or, you know, specifically for 18 months, you know, sort of work where you're looking at child development. Uh, if you're making sort of family stories, half the audience is going to be, you know, well over 10. So they've, they've got to be interested as well. And that's just good storytelling. There's no, nothing other than sort of uh, just good storytelling. Yeah, there's no blues for the dads. No, no, no. I mean, no, absolutely. I think we're very passionate about that. That it's, 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 you know, it isn't that there's stuff for the kids that's very young and stuff for the adults that's a bit rude. It's that we challenge the children with the language we use and the storytelling we have, but that it's engaging for the adults as well. Yeah, it's like you're saying, it's telling a good story well, and using the possible spaces of imagination that audiences can collectively buy into at the same time to be pulled through a story or pulled along with a story. Um, so we've sort of touched on it a little bit 
on my next question, but how do you make your work? Um, you've mentioned that it's a devising process. I mean, what does a devising process mean to you two as makers? Um, like, what's your process like before you get into a room, while you're in the room, and then et cetera, et cetera? <laughs> I'm just well, laughing because it changes a lot. It really yeah, there's, does. No, there's no real blueprint that we sort of stick to. Oh, no, I mean, I think a memorable moment in our devising history was definitely the caravan holiday. <laughs> when we decided we were going to write Wolf, which was last year's Christmas show, by the two of us. We could only afford two of us. So we went and stayed in a caravan in Berwick for a week. Because Camisado Club had done a similar thing a year or two previously, very successfully. It, it'd been really successfully and sunny, which is the important <laughs> point. So we decided to do the same thing. And it, it wasn't sunny. It was still it was still successful, but it was <laughs> our attempt was to write a lot of kind of background on the story and the the show and characters and the world that it existed in with tasks set by the um, director. So that was Brad McCormick. Um, And so we were kind of going away with this kind of to do list of fun tasks that we would work through and do some writing before we went into the kind of the rehearsal room for the first R&D period. And we did get a lot of kind of good little nuggets out of it, but it was it wasn't quite as we expected. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but we'd never, we never, we hadn't ever done a sort of week, a writing week like that before. We generally do an R and D, and then, and that forms for a week or two weeks, and that, and we just make material sort of based on, uh, based on the story. <clears throat> but and in the make, run up to the R and D process, what what is going on? Well, I think in those run up weeks to moving into a space where you're have enough ideas to work off, like what is that? moment of like collecting archiving ideas like how do you go about doing that i think it's it there it varies depending on who we're collaborating with and the story so for alan pussycat for instance there was already a, a text there was already a poem written so so there was no sort of a, there was original material of course but that but you're going from a poem whereas tinfoil astronaut which our second show was completely original. There was no, it wasn't based on anything other than vaguely based on the um, the Ugly Duckling, but none of that story was part of it. And then, you know, then stories like Three Bears or um, uh, The Boy Who Cried Wolf, they're existing stories. So you're, you're sort of looking at that, at that story and seeing how you can interpret it. Uh, so it, it, it varies how we approach the R and D, but I think we but we always approach it with a sort of playfully, without trying to impose too much on on the story. Before we never really go in with a sort of really clear idea of how we're going to tell it. We never sort of stick rigidly to anything in particular. And then, so recent, so for Wolf, for instance, we. We just spent two weeks. We done it. We did a writing week. We did that writing week in a caravan in Rainy Berwick, and we did uh, make. We did do those things. We did write a sort of version of the world, but no sort of real material. And then we spent a week or two weeks with Brad, just making, just going from making very little vignettes or little pieces of writing, and sort of filling in the story. Uh, with post-it notes on a wall, basically. Yeah, there's a lot of cups of tea and a lot of post-it notes 
and kind of like Bob says, we don't kind of um, we don't know how it will pan out until we're practically in the room. I think we're very practical makers. So we can talk a lot about the world and what we think it feels like or what it looks like. And we can Pinterest ideas and reference different shows that we've seen or films or books. And we talk about that a lot with different collaborators. And then we tend to get excited about a puppet idea or um, some characters that might exist. But until we go into the room, it's all up for grabs. Um, And then tends to come from a lot of little tasks that were set, kind of two minute tasks to 40 minute tasks to create either individually or as a pair. Right, so I've got two questions for you then. So then you talk, you both talk about the world. Now, when you're talking about the world, I know you're talking about the world, but you are talking about a world. <clears throat> so what does that mean? Just, and you talk about two-minute tasks and 40-minute tasks. Like, What are those tasks, if you don't mind sort of giving away some of your genius? Task, task work, th- those sort of things came from Brad, really. When we worked with Brad. It was uh, about sort of um, little t- tasks. So, so something, for instance, like we'd, we'd each tell a story about, I don't know, what you had for breakfast or lunch or whatever. And, you know, one of us would make notes about it, little words, and then we'd set each other, or Brad would set tasks to us to, to make, I don't know, a five-minute piece that's got no words, but it includes... Uh, something about toast or uh, and it's got to be in the, the style of a silent movie or, you know, just very little tasks that are kind of vary or they'd be kind of writing tasks that are on a particular theme that is part of the, the story. So we're just sort of accumulating lots of material that is relevant to the, lots of writing material that is relevant to the story and then lot of sort of physical material that is uh that i suppose uh isn't necessarily always relevant to the story but because you've got the, the story in your mind it generally will be relevant but you also then you're, you're trying to find things that are maybe left field that you haven't thought about that you can bring into the story i think um yeah i think the freedom in the tasks is that you're not create trying to create a scene for a play you're trying to create something about crumbs using only newspaper and you're like okay right and so your brain is kind of and your creativity is released because there's no you're not yeah you're not trying to do something brilliant you're just trying to respond to the task and all the while you've got the story of um the boy who cried wolf or the three bears kind of running through your mind and so you kind of go oh that might be an interesting way to represent this part of the story or to visualize that bit so yeah, it's a, it's a nice way to work. Three, two, one, we have liftoff! Alva whizzed past her bedroom window, ah! over the trees and above all the houses, ah! as high as the birds, ah! past planes in the sky, ah! to the fluffy white clouds! Ah! 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 Yeah, when you, when you talk about the world, I think, you know, in that, um, <clears throat> you know, I know when I'm trying to make something, I talk about the world a lot. But, you know, some people, you know, uh, listen to this might go, all right, yeah, I get that. But, like, but what what is it? Can you define what that means as two makers? Yeah, I think, well, I think it probably comes 
from working with you actually about that kind of thing of the uh, thinking about or oh, or having a world that you can play in and be inventive. Uh, and but I think it. I think sometimes we talk about it in two different ways. There's a the world that we sort of begin with for R and D, and then there's a world that the audience will sort of come into. And they're not always this, and they sort of happen at different times. And they're not always the same thing. So the world of, so for instance, when we went to Berwick to write Wolf, we did sort of write a a world that uh, we wanted to, we wanted to make, we wanted to make. We felt the story um, belonged in this world of uh, uh, mountains and sheep farmers and. Uh, a very sort of traditional old style world that isn't necessarily what the audience walked into, but they did walk into a world, but it was more like a, a sort of uh, a storybook town. It sort of changed, it, it sort of changed really. So I think when we talk about creating a world, we talk about it in sort of two different ways and it's kind of fle- flexible really. Yeah. It's the language of the piece, isn't it? And what kind of, I suppose it's partly we talk about the world when we're um, collaborating with designers. Uh, so when we work with Alison Ashton, we'd kind of say, well, we kind of we can visualise it like this and the things we might touch will be like this. So um, for wolf, we want lots of wool. We don't want to be wearing wool because it'd be too hot, but we want lots of kind of lots of wool. But then other than that, lots of white and simplicity so we can then be creative with kind of very few props and then she's like okay so then she started talking about Scandinavian kind of imagery and little houses and then we kind of can go back and forth between these ideas I I think that's sort of that is the world sort of develops because we we pick people to collaborate with that will we that will sort of give ideas and collaborate we'd never sort of Hannah and I aren't the only people sort of coming up with writing it and coming up with the ideas. We specifically want to work with people who are active in telling the story through their medium. For instance, someone like uh, Jeremy Bradfield, who we've worked with a number of times, uh, is wonderful to work with because he tells the story through music, and it's another part of the it's another part of the world, it's another layer as well as someone like Alison, who is very good at visualising the story and telling an, another part of the story through the set and through the things that you will come in and see and, and tactile things that you can touch. And so, and Hannah and I like to be involved in all in all those things. Uh, but there's no, we don't sort of, we like to work with a lot of people who will, uh, add to that rather than us sort of saying this is what it is yeah it's so very it's collaborative kind of isn't it it's very much like a big yeah. collaboration between lots of different art forms and I suppose we kind of we're the middle little pin that then kind of jumps out and meets everyone and tries to tie it together but each different yeah. element definitely talks they talk amongst each other and yeah it's trying to meet all the senses of the audience because we've got that younger audience, we don't want it to just be audio or just be visual. We're trying to kind of think of all the different things and the textures and 
yeah, appeal to all senses. I think that's becoming more important to us as as we sort of go on that uh, what you see and what you and and sound and you know music and sound is just as important as it may be more important to a, a ch- child audience than the words that people say. So when we've been making under five shows for Christmas, we uh, specifically try to reduce the amount of language in it so that there'd be moments that it was just just actors on stage doing something that you could follow, but the the sound was telling the story or you you could understand what was happening because of the sound or, you know, there was just a puppet on stage. For instance, in The Three Bears, there was a moment where Goldilocks trashed the Three Bears house, but it was just Hannah with a puppet and this kind of uh, jazz drumming from Jeremy. But that's all it was. And it, uh, it sort of ramped up and ramped up and ramped up until, you know, she pulled the Christmas tree down and there was sort of sometimes... Sometimes it was completely the same, but sometimes the children were sort of ready to get on stage and def- defend the Three Bears house. Like, I think we're just trying to explore more now what we can do uh, through what you can see and what you can hear, rather than language. Yeah. For under fives especially. Yeah, we don't simplify the language. I think that's important. We never dumb it down. We just reduce the amount of it or increase the repetition of things but it's all about that visual storytelling and different ways to to tell different elements and then it keeps it fresh as well so you haven't it's not the same kind of pace the whole way through it can chop and change between wordy bits and silent bits and so why have you decided to make work that way you know a devising process is like is endlessly um full of moments of agonizing and then also full of moments of agonizing like looking at the voids like, why have you two as makers decided to make work that way? Because it's not like the easiest way to create. No, it isn't the easiest way to create. But it's, it's so it's, fun, isn't it? It's there's so much joy in it. Yeah. Like going into that to a rehearsal room with with a group of people and a story and that kind of bubbly excitement that you've all got to find a really good way to tell it. There's so much freedom and joy and that exploration and it's worth kind of sifting through it's like going to tk maxx like when you sift through all the rubbish and then you find one piece of gold it's like well i'm gonna come back because that was good yeah (laughs) there you go kitchen zoo is like tk maxx i refute that sorry bob i'm sorry (laughs) i mean well it's true i mean it's true but in some ways it's out of that's the that as theatre makers, rather than maybe performers or actors, that's in some ways the only way we, when we began, knew how to work. Like, some ways it was just sort of hit the ground running and do it the way that you know how. But actually, I think we do enjoy that. There's, I suppose part of it is a little bit of um, uh, not a little bit of um, control freakiness possibly in not wanting to sort of uh delegate something to a a writer to write the story and then it belongs to them and there can't be any kind there's not a lot of uh room to 
to change things or move things. I think, and also it's playful. Devising is very playful. And I think we've all, we always try to remain playful within anything that we're doing. I think we're always trying to sort of recreate playing as children. And I think Kitchen Zoo, we always say it's the two of us, but it never is just the two of us. It always is such a big team. But because I suppose it comes down to the two of us and we end up making decisions, then we do end up being involved in all the different parts. And so we have to be so flexible to be able to change everything. So it's I think that's part of the strength of it is that we that we're at the kind of the centre of this thing, but we need all the people around us to make it what it is. And I think you're right, there is an excitement to devised work that um, I think there's an excitement to devised work, especially devised work for children, because I don't always, I think you can sort of move away from very kind of sweet um, stories or stories like, uh, as wonderful as they are, things like the Gruffalo or big, big theatre shows, uh, you know, go in the West End and toured the whole country and you can go to big, big theatres are wonderful and they are wonderful, they're wonderful stories but I think there's an there's an excitement and a real difference in devised work because because I suppose, partially because we don't know always know how it's going to turn out by the end of, you know, by the first show but also I think that I think the excitement of making it and the journey of making it comes through into the story and it becomes a, a real a real journey for the audience as well. I think you sort of take them on the, uh, the journey you've taken in some ways. I think the audience is very important to us and the people we work with. We work, I mean, we care very much about making work with and for young audiences, but we make sure we work with other similar people. So everyone's in the room thinking about who's going to be sat on the carpet watching it and how they will engage with it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely, I think that's absolutely right. You know, your audience has to be constantly in the room with you somehow. They sometimes are. Well, absolutely. I'm sort of going to come on to that a little bit about your rehearsal room. And so what is your rehearsal room like? And... How long does it feel safe to play, if that makes sense? Can you talk about your flexibility as a company? But at some point, I think both as, you know, authors of Kitchen Zoo and authors of work, there comes a point where the playfulness has to sort of move into something that feels a little bit more concretized for, I don't know, going into tech or something like that. But, you know, so my question is... <clears throat> Um, essentially, like, what's your rehearsal room like and how long does it feel safe for you to to continue to be flexible and play? I think, well, I think, uh, again, rehearsal room depends on who we collaborate with. But I think always quite sort of playful, I suppose, is the word. But I think flexibility-wise, I think we are always sort of, we're always looking for a sort of uh, a structure quite early on, like almost at the beginning. So then there's there's this thing that you're clinging to, a sort of skeleton story that you can play within. And you can do that for, I, I think we're always sort of quite firm on it, staying this way within reason by the beginning of a tech, I suppose. 
yeah we're probably a bit frustrating to technicians and and lots of our creatives because there isn't a script and and often there's not anything on like printed paper for a little while or quite a long time because we like to change it but then that's the joy in in making it and being flexible and working with those people but I think once we reach tech it's kind of there's parameters that are pinned down but there's there's still always some flexibility and even kind of the last few Christmases at non-stage we've you know we come off stage at the end of every one and every day we say gosh that was that was really funny I really enjoyed that oh, what about this moment or that was a, that was a tough audience but there's always something that you go how about if we change this bit or if that bit was a bit quicker or and so there's always little bits that we play with and continue to to hone until they're as good as they can be it's got to remain alive because I think if you if you just carry, I mean, how many shows in a Christmas run for instance what is it like 70 or 80 or something like that if it just sort of st- and, and, and the other thing is that it doesn't say the same anyway because once you get an audience in the room it's a completely different thing anyway and then you spend sort of a week relearning the show I think because then there's this very different energy and there's very different energy between you know busloads of school children who are really w- like a sort of military operation sort of marching in high vis and they're really willing to all stand up or participate vocally or whatever way it might be then there's a very different thing on a sort of Saturday and Sunday where it's families who are in little groups of twos or threes or fours and it can be quiet there or it feels very, very different. So I think the the sort of flexibility of the show has to sort of remain from a sort of very loose thing at the beginning of rehearsals to a sort of more a, a show by the end of the tech but then it's still got to remain kind of, it's got to remain responsive for every audience, I think. And we do, we do do that we sort of change as we go along. I think that's part of the joy as well. We're not performers and we're not creators. We, we're, we're theatre makers, we do both. So people often come to our shows and go, someone said the other day, oh, you're in the last show, the last Kitchen Zoo show. It's like, yes, well, <laughs> it is just us. Yeah. We make it. And so that kind of that freedom that we we know it inside out from every different angle, from the the marketing side to the kind of the budgets. So it's like when you're on stage, that's the bit where it like makes us the most alive. And so we just kind of take it by the horns and and enjoy it, but also have the the permission and the safe space between each other to to change bits and tweak bits. Well, I think what's really interesting about that is um, that you. Um talk about your creative teams going uh, we're going to not have anything presented to us as in like there's nothing here's a script there you go go and work on that uh, how does that how do you manage that as, as two makers we buy a lot of cups of tea <laughs> for other people ply people with biscuits and things no well i mean to say there isn't a script isn't necessarily true because there is a document there's a there's a there's lots of material written yes. down in some sort of form and we, whatever creative team we have is invited into the uh, R&D period to see the work that we're making uh, as it goes. So maybe every week we have a uh, musician and uh, sound design or, you know, a puppet maker come in and, we, and they see what we're working on and we have a chat about it. 
So it's like an informal sharing that we we make sure we host at the end of R&D and then during rehearsals just to kind of get everyone in one space and go, here's the like absolute update. This is everything we know. You know, there's nothing hidden. We'll share all the best bits with you because it makes the work richer because then they can feed back and go, oh, how do you thought about, you know, um, Matt Tucky last year got really excited about putting little speakers in the houses when the audience came in. To, to make this world really come alive from the first step in. And so those kind of feedback opportunities just make it really rich. I think sometimes people who work with us do sometimes find it a little bit difficult to work without a a script, without going, you know, this happens in Act 1 and this, you know, this is where the, the interval is or whatever. But I think uh, we, we, do, we do have a sort of quite... Well, we have in the past had quite a core creative team of people that we've worked with um, a number of times. So perhaps they've sort of gotten used to it a little bit. But but um, but I don't think I think it's quite exciting a way to work because you do you do, we I suppose there is a world from the beginning of the R and D, but those collaborators are being invited to uh, to change it and to add to it yeah it's not precious and, it's it's yeah. flexible and to tell the story with us I think rather than just just light it or just put some sound or just make some nice music you know that you've been we're asking people to our collaborators to tell the story with us Camasado Club and your own independent work and then also you work with Kitchen Zoo. What have you learned about yourselves as makers and does that learning sort of work across all three areas of your work? I think because Hannah and I do everything in Kitchen Zoo, you know, produce it and market it and do the whole, it's just us, the whole to the kit and caboodle. I think we have learned more about um, producing things. I think it's fair to say neither of us are producers in any stretch of the imagination, but um, I think you understand better how theatre is made. Yeah, appreciate it, definitely. Appreciate the work other people do a lot more. I think before me and my work, I was just 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 an actor, but uh, just a person who performed without doing the other the other I think it was um I don't think I really understood how lo- how lo- what how long it takes to make a show and how expensive it is to make a show and I think actually it's interesting isn't it that during this um this period where places have been shut and theatre's been shut and there's been a and the whole industry is sort of teetering on the brink of uh a collapse how interesting it is that um just the mechanics of making theater i don't think anybody outside i mean even outside outside of theater knows how it how it works it's kind of interesting i think making your own work because you sort of real you start to realize how many people it takes to just put on a, a small show like we do there's only two of us in it but it takes so many more people to you know, to write the music, to light it, to 
market it to write an, you know a bid for it. I think it's interesting the the mechanics of how theatre happens. I think that's what I've learned mostly. I mean, I think what's interesting is that you know Oliver Dowden the other day said, "Oh, you can have live performance indoors August the first. As if we've yeah. all got shows waiting, you know, just to to go. Yeah, you know, and, but that you know, shows a huge lack of knowledge. I think. I think. I think it's interesting. Culture in this country isn't really. I don't know if we really have a a sort of cultural life in this country in some ways, because it seems to be that if it's not the glittering West End, or it's not something that's making, you know cash hand of a fist it's not really interesting to yeah people like Oliver Durden well, the thing <laughs> is that, there's that thing we talk about a lot Bob in um uh theatre for young audiences people often say oh, what do you do and you just kind of go oh, I work in an office because you're just like oh gosh if I say oh I do theatre for your audience your young audiences they go oh panto or um nothing wrong with it it's a very different thing or um Oh, are you going to be on um, CBBC one day? And you think, well, that you know, that would be an all excellent, they, an excellent job. But I'm, say, I'm really happy with what I do. Or they say, oh, something will come up soon. Yeah, there's a real kind something of something hasn't already come up. It's, it's you know, it's work we're passionate about. I think, yeah, it is, it is interesting the kind the the uh, what is valued, what kind of culture is valued in our country, as opposed to in Europe, in sort of mainland Europe, I feel they've got a different, uh, they acknowledge it differently. It's more important to them. All various sort of levels of uh, of culture. But like Anna said, Panto, for instance, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing because it, you know, it seems to be the only time when theatres are packed to the rafters. You know, it's the only time of year when people have a, it seems to be the only time of year anyway, where a vast amount of people have a engagement with theatre. Sorry, Hannah, I was good. there's somebody on Twitter, wasn't there, who said, um, why, why are people talking about pant- pantomime, like, as if it was a sort of dirty word? Everyone's sort of piled on top of it. Well, it's the only time people, you know, go to the theatre and make so much money for venues I mean, Northern Stage's Christmas shows must be the, you know, the reason that survives for the rest of the year. I'm sure of it. Every theatre, I'm sure, is like that. Because they're, you know, families want to come out, schools come. It's the only time, it's the first experience for a lot of children and for a lot of new families. Yeah. Well, we feels- say that, don't we? It's the, it's the one time that people will come. And so there's a huge pressure yeah. on us to to do something that's really good so they go oh perhaps we could come another time you know or if it is the only thing they go to perhaps with the school every year that it's really good because will the will the nurseries and the schools just book and book again well possibly because it's the christmas treat but you then want to make sure but it's gonna be a treat it's yeah it's good (laughs) and it's good for everyone yeah truly i think you know i couldn't agree with you more i think you know and it's that you know level of it's a space where families are going together to the same space to hopefully have a wonderful time to, you know, add to their Christmas. And so I, I totally uh, hear you about going, the pressure to make it good. I'm not saying that anybody ever goes into making any cycle, any making cycle to make it bad, 
But I think, especially at that point in the year, you want to have an audience come along and, and like appreciate the money they've spent and appreciate the time they've had in a room with some other people. And I think you're absolutely spot on. And it sort of leads me on to my next question is, <clears throat> do you think that the creation of family work is recognised as it should be? No. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, no I, don't, I think we talk about it quite a lot, don't we? And, and yeah, we do. giving it more of a platform because it's this thing that, you know, these are our future audiences. I think, Bobby, you say it much better than I do. But these, like, this is the next generation of theatre makers and and performers and audiences and prime ministers and, you know, and you want to inspire them and that's important. You know, yeah, it feels like such a an opportunity to have, so. I think exactly that. I think there's, we often feel quite sort of privileged that we've got this opportunity. Like I said before, it's like a blank canvas. You've got these people sometimes you know just children but sometimes it's adults as well who bring their children to the theater and it's their first experience and it's quite one it's one theaters i think for people who don't go very often are quite alienating spaces anyway you know if you if you only go once a year you feel out of you feel you don't know how where things are you don't know how to behave i do, i think there is a sort of alienate in quality to theatre buildings and venues, which we should try and rectify. I don't know how to do it, but I... So now would you do it? I don't know. I, well, I, I don't know it. But I think there is a... Well, I, th- well, I think through making work that is... Uh, children, family work yeah. that is uh, appealing to them in good quality... Making it a safe space. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not just Christmas. I think it's making it that year-round kind of um making it their building so it's not this is our building and you can come in and see something in it but it's like this is your building you know come in and and engage with different things throughout the year you know see the different spaces feel like you can come in and use the toilets sit in the cafe to meet your friends and bring your push chairs or yeah I think it's trying to find a way to make a theatre a community space in the positive sense of the word, rather than, you know, community centres get a bit of bad rap, I think, but making it, yeah. you know, more accessible. Yeah, but not also accessible like, the thing as well. well yeah, and, and not a yeah. large part of your work, you know, you are going into, like, like lots of different communities. And I think that's, you know, must be quite fascinating for you to go in and go, we're bringing some theatre to you. And because people's, I think, innate sense of theatre is, it's going to be boring, I'm going to have a rubbish time, and let's just get through this for an hour and then we can go out and do something nice. And I think, you know, what have your experiences been like taking your show around so many different spaces, like not just in the region, but across the country? I think the community centres are um, the best shows we do in some ways, because often we don't have lights, you know, it's just the show kind of a bare, it's our set and we turn up in the speakers and we just do the show, but you have to work a bit harder because it's there. It's the audience who come to it. It's their space. It's their building, and you're 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 not you you haven't got the sort of luxury of being in the theatre and they're coming to you. You're coming to their uh, community centre. Yeah, and, and they go every show. week. It's like, oh, what's go, on yeah. this week? Is it the bingo? Is it a show? They'll just turn up. So it's kind of you get people you wouldn't have had in the theatre, and dads that have been shipped out who don't want to be there, sitting at the like the perimeters pushing their child onto the carpet, and you're like, right, that's you know that's a really good challenge. I want to have you smiling and tapping your toe and 
because the music is good. Yeah, and you want to, and and actually, we've had some like wonderful interactions in some of these different spaces. You go in and you you judge the space and you go, oh, Saturday dads, and then actually, this that's not the case. It was just that uncomfort of I don't know what this is going to be, or if you're going to make me dance, or we're going to give you the chance to dance, but no pressure. But they've been. I think sometimes they've been the best shows. The the second show we made, Tinfoil Astronaut, was kind of made with um a community centre in mind. It, audience-wise, uh, and we opened it in a community... Or the second, the sort of second show yeah. on the tour we did was a community centre, and it was raucous, you know, there was joining in, they really joined in, like, you yeah. know, they were on the stage, you know, everywhere. But it was sort of brilliant because all of a sudden there was a, a life beyond the stage. I don't know, it was just... I think those audiences are really... Uh, Brilliant, and we've we've got a sort of commitment to them. Our next sort of projects are really um, in theatres. The ones that we sort of have got lined up in the future are really kind of they're they're all in theatres, and there's no sort of community centre uh, work yet. But I hope we do because we've, we've committed to it. Commitment though, to we? it. You know, obviously that, you know, we've gone through, like as you point out, Bob, a huge transition at the moment and, you know, the role of venues inside of, you know, what theatre can be. And obviously with you guys making work for your community, with your community, you know, I think that's a really sort of interesting space to be in about, you know, it might not be always, you know, going back to the to the old norm of its venue. It has to be, I think, also about, yeah, and more and more and more so about, the community and I know like you when you work you do go into quite a lot of schools and talk to lots of different communities about the work you're making um where where did that come about in about generating that as a space to like create with the community or why did that come about I think it just we want the work to be relevant to the audiences that we're aiming it at and actually no one knows that better than the audience themselves so it makes no more sense to you know, the, there'd be no sense in making a show for three-year-olds and never speaking to a three-year-old. Because even mm-hmm. we make these shows and we're often doing birthday parties or storytelling sessions and you do them and then you come back to the rehearsal room and go, oh, I had a really good interaction with this child and they made me think X, Y, and Z. So then we just said, well, let's let's book some time in with, um, we go to the same school each year at the moment, um, Castleside Primary School, because um, we have a, a connection there. But also we've got to know the kids and, We've got a really good relationship with them. And so we can we kind of offer them a workshop and in exchange they, they give us such rich ideas. Uh, we ran a workshop at Ark in Stockton when we were making the Owl and the Pussycat and we asked the children to... Um, Bob went with one of them as the Pussycat and I went with the other group as the Owl and we asked them to write a kind of almost a big brother, Dear Two, on sea, on the sea, Um <laughs> yeah we asked them to write little letters home and things and the the words that they wrote ended up in the show verbatim because they were much better than we could have ever written and then those children come and see the show and go I did that you know they can see what they've done it's got worth it's you know it's in this professional setting or it's come to their community center and it's just so much more valuable to have them in it from the beginning just get their voice in it really just get their voice the, the voice of uh, the audience in the in the show is fantastic. Which we got in um, Tinfoil Astronaut. We recorded some voices. That was great. Oh, yeah. And they played back as some kids in the show. And every time you hear them, there's just that little kind of 
electricity of these little voices being like, I'm going to be on a show. <laughs> it's amazing. And they, those kids came to see the show. I remember seeing them kind of light up and they're like, oh, that's me. It's really special. I think it's important, isn't it, to, to, to talk about sort of like uh, creative journeys as well, because we go to Castleside and we generally, well, for the past couple of shows, because they've been Christmas shows, we've sort of met classes as they've just been beginning in September. And then they, when we sort of tell them our, we sort of tell them the story of what the, sh- the show is about and do little bits of things that we're working on with them. And then they come and see it. And it, actually, Castleside Row was our first audience in December when um, we opened the show. They come to like an open dress rehearsal. And so I think it's really nice for uh, an audience like that to see the beginning of a creative process and how it ends up. Like what the outcome, what the project is at the end of it. Because I don't think, I don't know if um, you know that really, if you if you have no sort of connection to any sort of creative professionals. I, I think it can be quite a sort of guarded, feels a bit, sometimes like a bit of a guarded secret, doesn't it? What goes on behind, yeah, behind closed doors, behind the stage. I think it's really, I think we should be more open about the sort of, um, I think we are quite open anyway, but I think unless you're interested in theatre specifically. It's being a bit vulnerable, isn't it? Yeah. Showing those vulnerabilities and going, oh, these are the best bits we've got at the moment, rather than going, we've got some really good bits we're not going to show you yet. But going out to a school and going, these are our best bits, and them going, eh, they're all right, (laughs) or getting really excited. You're like, okay, right, we're on the right track, or this is really not working. They're really useful for that. Whereas if we kind of just stayed in the rehearsal room and then opened to an audience, heaven knows what the response would be. Yeah, because they're very honest, aren't they, as an audience? Very honest. Straight away. (laughs) Sometimes too honest. They'll know within sort of four or five minutes if they're going to be with you. And and simply because you're right, you know, it's about how you're placing that with them and for them. And I think it's one of the most terrifying moments regularly of when you put a show in front of a a live family children or a children's audience because you'll know how much work you're going to have to do on the flip side of it. <clears throat> yeah. It's so different to what, what you thought. I always think it, it's a completely different show because it feels very, very different to the rehearsal. It doesn't feel like the same show at all. It takes on a sort of different life because there's all these, there's, all, there's like hundreds of kids there. Yeah, because it's the first time you hear your show. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it I is. mean, yeah. I, I, now that sounds weird, but I think, I think you know, when you you can, as you're saying, in your room, you can make it as good as you think it can be, and then you put it in front of somebody, and then suddenly you're aware of all the good bits and all the bits in between. And... Uh, <laughs> Which is... And I think because our shows are interactive, like we never want them to be, you know, fourth wall drama. We want them to be an interactive conversation with the audience. You know, whether they're a, a teeny tiny tot and something's flying over their head and they're making little noises or whether we're asking them for verbal input, like we want to have that conversation and that interaction with them. Like it's it's very much a live thing. We never really yeah. want to make a show that sort of behind a fourth wall. We're not going to do head of garbler for them. Not yet. Might. Never say never. <laughs> that would be great. Never.
what are the recognisable elements of a kitchen zoo show? As in, when you go, uh, you've you've not written it, but written it. You've r and it. You've put it on it. What what are the things that you're trying to build into that process, that show, that makes it a kitchen zoo show? I think play. play. Play is a massive thing that we play on stage using objects not as they're intended perhaps or there's that kind of play between us and that that kind of I suppose that thing you have when you're young that you then decide you shouldn't have as an adult we're trying to get back so that kind of just the joy in exploring and being creative yeah I think it is play definitely and that kind of thing of using uh things that, I mean for instance the the uh rocket and for Lassner was made of a milk bottle and the amount of children who sort of left with their parents going we're going to make we'll make one of those when we go home I think that is a recognisable element that there is something that you recognise being used in a different way yeah I think that, but also character wise yeah. I don't think we ever want it to be something exclusive and far-fetched like the tinfoil astronaut is the story of someone you don't expect to be successful because the world's against her and she's come from nothing. And actually, she can be absolutely successful, as can our audience. And it's that thing of, it's rela- the, the stories are relatable and the characters are relatable, even if they go to space. Yeah, I think we always want, want the audience to see themselves somewhere within the, within the story. I think that, well, I think that's the sort of mark of good storytelling, isn't it? That you can sort of relate to it and you connect with it on some level. Yeah, I think we try and choose stories that do that. That you know, if you're a grown up or a child, you can still find a sort of a, a connection somewhere within it. Yeah, I think also that there's um, at least in our kind of studio shows that aren't touring, we try and create a world and or an environment that you are that you enter into. So we've had the deep dark woods you've come in amongst the trees and you've sat on the carpet and been able to touch the kind of the foliage and the leaves that are made of knitting so you're in the same world as the characters or you've come into wolf and it's that scandinavian town and you've got the sounds and the the visuals and we try and create that on tour as much as we can i think visual i think i think a kitchen is is got a a sort of a visual quality and a music and sound there's always going to be music and there's always going to probably always going to be puppets. And there's always going to be um, something uh, tactile and, and a space that is uh, changed slightly. So it's not uh, a stage in raked seating, that the seating is slightly uh, less formal than that. We often have children and grown-ups who are encouraged to sit on carpets uh, or some or cushions or something in front of the stage, so that the space is less. Um, well, yeah, I suppose so it's a, formal. It, so it's more informal, and you've got, you know, it's maybe not so alienating. I think, and and that it's not a dark. You're not entering a dark, a real dark space that is kind of huge and cavernous and uh, scary. I remember as a child being quite scared of theatres. I was taken and enjoyed it, but the initial thing walking with theatre and the, the sound changes and the atmosphere changes and the 
light it's very dark and there's it, you know, it feels noisy and it feels is it's quite a, I think as an adult you forget the experience of walking into a place like a cinema or a theater it can be quite um, intimidating we're committed to making like um accessible performance aren't we kind of you know we all we advertise all our performances as relaxed because we want people to feel relaxed and to feel that everybody is welcome so you can come in and there's different seating options you can leave if you need to the lights will stay at a certain level you can make noise if you need to yeah you know it's all encouraged that anybody can come and enjoy it there's no age you know there's no bottom age but there's no top age to to people coming into the space and engaging with it and it's a nice it's a shared space you know we all exist in it and we can all see each other and say hello to each other sometimes during the show <laughs> and that's nice i've got two more questions for the pair of you um who or what inspires you like like as in not just theater but like whatever you know i don't know comic book film author whatever whatever like like what are the things that like you go that i either want to make work like that or i am inspired to make work like that well that's a good question that is though i mean i feel like i could do people a disservice by not mentioning the stuff they create there's lots of people i like good storytelling probably for me more on the kind of child storytelling level rather than Shakespeare. I find that a little bit daunting, but, you know, Roald Dahl, that kind of excitement in words. Um, gosh, I'll have a think, Bob, you you speak wisdom. <laughs> That'll be a first. <laughs> I don't know, I think lo- I, lots of things. I think less theatre inspires us, say us, but I do think less theatre inspires us making kitchen to it than um, than other sort of things like TV or film or um, or books that we've read. I, I think Hannah's right. It is sort of strong storytelling that inspires us. For, uh, but also kind of uh, very visual things. I think art, like artwork, I think inspires us quite a lot. And draw and drawings that someone like. Um, uh, the illustrator, I can never think, is his name Chris Riddell? Oh, or Chris, Chris Riddell. Riddell. His beautiful drawings, yeah. I think. Often we sort of, in a sort of, we sometimes put together a sort of mood, you know, like a sort of picture representation of what the show might be. Often he's present. But then it can be anything from something like, for the show that we were planning, that we were planning, that we're not planning now for uh, for Christmas, um, things like uh, Drag Race, and, burl- and burlesque. I mean, that, of course, it would never that wouldn't end up in the show. But those kind of, um, I think you're sort of trying to do find sort of worlds and uh, and other things that you can tell stories through. No, I, I agree. I think it's not being afraid to bring influences that aren't necessarily appropriate for the audience, but they come into the rehearsal room. Yeah. So we kind of talk about different songs and bits from Liza, Liza Minnelli's done and Fred and Ginger and bringing all these kind of things that you might not expect to come together into a room. And then, I don't know, we, we bring very different things, don't we? And yeah. then get excited and then, you know, you get all bubbly. Mus- and think Music good, is a, good shows. A, a huge influence, I think. And it doesn't matter kind of what kind of music it is. 
So for, tin, so for, for Owl and Pussycat, we had a very kind of, because it's very, a very sort of kind of typically English uh, sound to it. It looked quite a subvertive poem, I think. There's a sort of very English quality to it. So it was very kind of, uh, it had a kind of folky sound. However, there was sort of Elvis songs in there and uh, kind of rock and roll, like like 50s rock and roll music had sort of weaved its way in, which was kind of lovely. And then for like Tinfoil Astronaut, it was, you know, it was very, very different. It was sort of Led Zeppelin and Crosby, Stills and Nash and ABBA, <laughs> you know, like a, like a sort of, yeah. this kind of, I think we try and have a, try and have a kind of huge palette of things that we're kind of interested in at the time to influence. Yeah. And it can just be kind of things that we're watching on the telly. Like, I don't know, Stranger Things, for instance, was, you know. Yes. Yeah, Tinfoil Astronaut. Tinfoil Astronaut. Yeah, definitely influenced by the current, the current climate. So heaven knows what we're going to make next. <laughs> Apocalyptics. <laughs> yeah. Tiger King inspired. God, that's not a bad idea. I mean, while we're on this, um, speaking of telly, I'm moving slightly away from work, and I haven't asked this question for quite a long time, actually. Um, but I'm quite interested after that conversation about what have you been watching then in the last sort of like or reading or what have you been doing? I think in the last, you know, the last 17, you know. Has it been 17 weeks? I'm sort of furious with myself because I've got this pile of books that's about six foot two that I have only, I've only read four of them in 17 weeks. I think that's ridiculous. I'm sort of furious with myself. But, um, what was great? What have you been watching and things? Or reading or listening to, like, like what, like beyond work, what have you been doing to relax or like take your, your brain somewhere else? I've been watching, we watch Normal People. Oh, I've not seen it oh, yet. Don't say anything. It. Oh, I'll tell you what we've been watching. I May Destroy You. Have you watched it? Oh, no. Oh, you've got to watch it, but don't watch it all at once. For goodness sake. It's like, it's, it's a lot. It's, um, fantastic but it's it's like i've sort of been beaten around the head it's really kind of it is though isn't it it's kind of it's really Sounds strikingly great. distressing and brilliant in equal measure it's fantastic and um, hannah g because you haven't been watching any of the sort of like big two tvs with normal and uh, all people and i'm really sure you like what have you been doing it's terrible, it's not terrible. It? i think you know it's just that you've been doing the things so I'm not a big reader, but I did read a whole book. In fact, it is, I think it's taken me two years to read it. But it was a really good book. And it's a, a fact. It's nonfiction. That's what it's called. Um, it's called Wally Funk's Race for Space. Oh, yes. And it's about um, this incredible woman called Wally Funk, who was one of the Mercury 13. Um, and having read it after we made the tinfoil astronaut is infuriating. But we're going to make it again bigger and better. So now it's, it's perfect. But if you like space, you don't need to know anything about it. Um, it's really, really good. That book. is one of the books on the pile. Um, you gave me that book and I haven't, a pile of yeah. books I've got that I haven't read yet. So <laughs> I will. So it took me long enough to read it. And we both watched um, The Bridge Theatre's Midsummer Night's <sighs> Dream. Oh, I missed it. Uh, I love which was, oh, it was such an exciting piece of theatre. I'm sorry you yeah, missed I'm sorry it. I'm you so missed sorry. It. it was fantastic. Because I told you like four minutes too late. Yeah, but then it took I me didn't... like, you know, 
because I'm, you know, full of burgers and beer, that it took me like another four <laughs> minutes to get to the computer to turn it on. So, you know, but I, I was hugely disappointed by that. that I missed it by at least so by 12 minutes. Did you watch Small yeah. Island? No. The, Nash, the, the NT. Um, well, it was amazing. Levy. Uh, Levy, Levy. And yeah, it was amazing. It was really, really fantastic. I didn't find, I didn't watch much of the kind of broadcast theatre at the very beginning of, you know, it all sort of started. I found it quite, just wasn't interested for it's some overwhelming. reason. overwhelming. And now I've sort of found a sort of slightly more positive attitude to it. In a, <laughs> in, um, i tell you what else was, was brilliant that I think's still available. Um, Wind in the Willows. What was it? That was at the Palladium. All right. Oh, that was great. I watch that. Yeah, I don't... I, can't put my finger on it but it just I could definitely watch it again and again it was such a good piece of like exciting work for families I do think you know um, yeah, without feeling, feeling too weirdly compliment I do think you've got exceptional theatrical taste Hannah Gowdy Hunter um, and so like if you recommend something I'm like I must watch that so that's something I definitely do whereas you on the other hand I'm perhaps a bit too picky, I was going to say as opposed to me who's got a <laughs> no, diet taste in everything no not at all um <laughs> Do you know well, what I watched? Uh, I love Wise Children. Did you watch that? Oh, I missed that Same as around. well. Oh, like the, oh, the day I went to watch sake. it, I missed that as well. I was like, I want to watch it now. I went, oh, is it still on? No, it's not because I've tried it. Because I was on oh, YouTube no, and I not. thought, oh, it's still there and you can't actually watch it. Oh. Anyway, this has descended you know, into like um, us three, like just ha- like <laughs> having like lighthearted chit chat over a cup of coffee we haven't got. Um, I so, have. I've got one. Oh, have you? oh, I haven't got any. Do you know what um, else I, I know this is going on? Do you know what else I watched? All I, And I only watched the first series, now I've had to catch up. Killing Eve. Oh my God, oh, Killing Eve was great. So the first good. series is amazing. The first series is amazing. But do you know what I think is a fantastic actor? Fiona Shaw. Yeah. Which one? Which, 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 which um, one is she? Carolyn she's, Martins, the. The head of oh yes, she's amazing. She, just the best actor. she did a version of Richard the Second that I desperate to get a hold of. I haven't seen it. I Maybe like you could her tweet her. Oh, that is a good show. Um, thank you so much, uh, Bob and Hannah from Kitchen Zoo. Thank you for spending an hour with producer Johnny and I, and uh, thank you. Really appreciate your time and all of your brilliant thinking. So thank you very much. Thanks, it was lovely. Thanks for having us. Our thanks to Hannah and Bob for taking the time to chat to us. I'm fascinated by how artists make work, and it was a real pleasure to be allowed into their rehearsal room for an hour or so. We'd also like to thank all of the artists, collaborators, and creatives mentioned in this podcast. A special thanks going to Katie Doherty and Jerry Bradfield for the original compositions heard within this recording. Thank you to producer Johnny, aka Johnny Rothwell, for editing the podcast, to Mark Melville for soundtracking, and Chris Clayton Scott for doing all the work to get this out to you. Finally, thank you for taking the time to listen. We really appreciate it. Please do take a look at the show notes with links to all the resources and websites that we talked about. And also, if you want to subscribe or leave us some thoughts, you know what to do. Thanks again. Take care. and Hopefully see you soon.